your prayers as he's speaking. How long, Sam? Hour and 40? They've asked him to speak for an hour and 45 minutes. I think you should just pick pick the book of Genesis and read it. (laughs) So apparently that's what I've been given. I'm just kidding. If you have a Bible with you or you use a device, would you like to turn to James chapter 5? James chapter 5, it's my uh, privilege to wrap the series up in James. It has been a blessing to us. And uh, for those of you who are new, my name's Maz. I'm here with my wife, Pip. And uh, when we're not speaking elsewhere or looking after grandkids, this is our church home. Some of you thought we'd disappeared for a while, but uh, we are here. So if you've now found James chapter 5, we're going to pick up from verse 13, and uh, let's read along right to the end of the chapter. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Need Elijah to pray now. (laughs) Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father... As we sit under your word, we would pray what James instructed right from the beginning, that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word. Because it's in the doing of your word that he reminds us we find liberty and freedom. And your word is also like a mirror, that as we look into it, it reflects back to us reality. And so we pray that we will see ourselves in the light of your word and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. James, as we've been saying, is a book that, as Linda put it, sucker punches at times. It hits straight between the eyes. That's why it's one of my favorite books. Growing up, as you know, in a Middle Eastern home with a Middle Eastern father and other people, They were just straight talkers. And I like that about James because James, as we know, was the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, James did not believe in his brother as the Messiah until after the resurrection when Christ appeared to him. And then James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. And in the early church and church history, James was known as James the Just. And he was considered a very pastoral, gentle, wise, strong, stable man. 
And you, you see that wisdom of his as he leads the church through the book of Acts. And he was known for his care and his pastoral advice. But he, as it were, shot from the hip. He said it like it was. And if you read through the book of James, his letter, he's writing, as it says at the beginning, to the 12 tribes dispersed or scattered through the nations. So what had happened to the church in Jerusalem as it got persecuted, people were dispersed, fled because of persecution to all the surrounding nations, as it were, for a safe haven. One of the closest things we've seen in recent time in history to that is what's happening in Ukraine. I follow a particular church and mission that has deep roots and a wide influence in, in Ukraine, and the missionaries have fed back that as the millions have been dispersed from Ukraine because of this terrible war going on, they see themselves, like the Christians in the Jerusalem church, being dispersed into the nations to bring the gospel to Europe. What a perspective. They see this suffering as something God can use to catapult them into Europe, which has become such an ungodly place to bring the good news. This is a key word that James doesn't use, but it encapsulates his letter, and that's the word perspective. When we have a right perspective on life, we can then begin to put the very things James said, is anyone in trouble into perspective? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the perspective we have on life that enables us to navigate the troubles, the trials, the suffering, the challenges of life. When we don't have a right perspective, then life becomes somewhat what? Overwhelming. Very depressing, very dark. I'm reading through a book about the burden of Soren Kierkegaard. He's a um, Danish philosopher, a very interesting person who wrestled with this Christian faith. And he came to a place where he used the word dread. And it was one of his favourite concepts, trying to wrestle with the dreadful things in life. And James, in a sense, faces head-on a lot of issues about life and suffering. And all through his letter, it's not just a random of punchy sayings. He's building, as it were, layer upon layer to get to the end where we are now to give us some of the most practical wisdom and advice about navigating life's journey. And if you read through chapter 1, it lays the foundation for the whole book, and then the rest of the letter expands on all these very punchy little things in chapter 1. And James is writing to these scattered tribes. You know, when you read a letter of the New Testament, you can zip over the first couple of verses very quickly, don't we? But in actual fact, they paint a perspective. When Paul says, to the saints in Ephesus... To the saints in Christ Jesus in the city of Philippi, what he's saying in that is he's giving us perspective that we are people of two worlds, two realms. We are Christians where God's presence has come to dwell in us, and so we are learning to live in the kingdom of God, but we out that, outwork that where? In the city, in the place where we live. 
So what Paul's saying when he writes them is, you're a Christian in Christ, but you're working this out in the city of Ephesus, in Philippi. And James is writing to them saying, you are brethren, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, but you're now working out your faith scattered in all the nations of the world. Here's some advice. Here's what to do, and here's not what to do. And I love the way he does that. In all the years Pip and I were in pastoral ministry, I found, because of, I guess, my kind of background I came from, um, as I've said to you before, I wasn't raised proper, and I found in pastorally counselling men was very different from pastorally counselling women. With ladies, you're respectful, you're gentle, you're gracious. With men, I was a little bit different. I'd just say, well, that's dumb. You don't talk to your wife like that. You don't treat her like, you don't do that to your kids. You don't relate like that at work. This is what you do. I found men preferred straight. Not, sorry ladies, girls' blouse counselling. <laughs> they liked the straight talk. It made my counselling sessions with men a lot shorter. <laughs> you can take that which way you want. But James reaches this point, as we've read, where he is saying, is anyone in trouble let him pray. And he's been building up to this by layering his letter and talking about the need for wisdom. If anyone needs wisdom, lacks wisdom, ask God. He talks about the place of the word of God in our life. And as he leads into that in chapter 1, he first says, don't be deceived. As you go through the trials of life, understand this, all good things come from God. He tempts no one to do wrong, nor can he be tempted to do wrong himself. Therefore, don't be deceived and think that it's God who is causing all this for you. So James is beginning to impact on their thinking because when we get into the trials of life and the challenges of life, we can begin to blame God, can't we? I'm the only one who does that? Okay. We wonder where God is. Then he transitions into chapter 2 where he begins to talk about the reality of what a real world faith looks like. In other words, if you say you have faith in God, you're a Christian, you believe in the word of God and you believe in God, then it's something that should be evidential and seen. Or as someone quipped, if you were put on trial for your faith, there should be enough evidence to prove you are a believer. That's the simple summary of chapter 2 in a sense. Then in chapter 3, he transitions into how we use our mouth, the words we speak, how we have to be very careful with our lips, and talks about then the need for wisdom, for godly wisdom. Because we need wisdom to navigate the journey of life, don't we? For me, as I've studied James over the years, my simple practical definition of wisdom is that I need to know what the right thing is to do, to say, at the right time and in the right spirit. Whether that's a situation or a, a relating to a person. We need wisdom to navigate the journey of life. 
And then he transitions into chapter 4, where he talks about the fact that we have this conflict between living in the world and loving the things of the world, or loving God and submitting to God. And then he starts to challenge those in the church who are merchants, who travel the world, as it were, trading their goods, making a living, and he's challenging them about, that's okay to do that, but don't put all your confidence, hope, and trust in that. And then in chapter 5, as we heard from Lyndon last week, he transitions into challenging the wealthy and the rich about their abuse of power, privilege, money, etc. What we need to understand is the group he addresses in chapter 4 are believers. The group he addresses in chapter 5 are not believers, but within the local community. So he it's why he addresses them in a different tone. It's why he says to those in chapter 4, as you go about your work, you should be saying, as the Lord wills. You don't say that to a non-believer. And then he warns the non-believers about the fact that wealth and material goods in and of themselves are not evil or wrong. It's the misuse of them. And one of the misuses is that we place our sense of pleasure or hope or confidence and trust in those things. And we often do that when we have a misplaced sense of purpose and perspective. And what he reminds them of, essentially, is this. One day you're going to die, and you will face the judgment. Hebrews tells us it is appointed to man once to die and then face judgment. Something we don't like to talk about, but it's a reality. And I have experienced enough in my journey personally, with my own parents passing, my, well, I can't call him my brother, but we grew up like brothers when he died suddenly, unexpectedly, and uh, he was the closest person I was to growing up. And we've all experienced death has touched all our lives in some way. And it reminds us, as James says, about our mortality and the brevity of life. And then he gets to these words, is any one of you in trouble? Anyone suffering? Anyone facing hardship? Anyone facing difficulties in life? You should do one thing, you should pray. Prior to that, he's also talked about the danger of making oaths and how wrong that is. And he's not talking about profanity in terms of swearing. What he's talking about is when you face troubles, trials, and difficulties, how many of you have ever been in one of those scenarios where you've made a, a promise to God, God, if you will get me out of this, I will. Again, I'm the only one. <laughs> I see my hand. <laughs> That's our human nature, isn't it? We want to bargain with God, therefore we will come before God and make an oath, a promise. And James says, that's actually a very dangerous thing to do. Your yes should be yes, your no should be no. I've done it. 
One of our children was born with um, cancerous disease, underwent multiple operations. There were times in that child's suffering where I can remember just weeping and crying and saying, God, if you will give me her condition, I will. Please take it off her. It's a father, it's a parent's heart, isn't it? No parent wants to see their child suffering. But God didn't take me up on it. But she has become, through her suffering, a most amazing person. And I saw that God has used it for so much good. Is anyone in trouble? Don't make an oath. Pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray for perspective. Secondly, pray for comfort. And yes, pray for intervention. Pray that God in his sovereign grace, who is the only one who knows the end from the beginning, will not only give you the ability to see perspective and persevere, because James Pryor talked about patience and perseverance. Pray for those things. Pray for God to intervene in his way, in his time, to bring deliverance from what you are experiencing. But the greatest thing I've learned to pray is, God, I pray you will do the work you want to do in my heart through this. As painful as this is, I think I shared with you at 29, having a complete emotional, mental, physical breakdown. And the prayer that turned that around was, God, I embrace this experience and simply ask that you'll do what you want to do. But if you could do it quickly, that would be really helpful. <laughs> because I have a lot of patience for a very short time. <laughs> is anyone happy? The idea of the word happy in the Greek is the idea of being in a cheerful disposition, in good spirits. Some people seem eternally like that, don't they? They're very annoying to be around. <laughs> Let him sing songs of praise. What James is saying in that verse, in a sense, is as he's flowing out of watch your tongue, watch your language, don't make oaths, when you're in trouble and distress, this is how you should appropriately respond. This is how you should use your words. They should be words of prayer and they should be words of praise. Because even in the midst of the most terrible pain, we can find something to which we can begin to thank God for. Pip used to do a great thing with the kids when they were growing up, and she does it with our grandkids, of when she tucks them in, is what's one thing you're thankful for today? What's one thing you could thank God for today? And that can turn an attitude around. Just finding even one thing to say, God, for this I am thankful. For this I am grateful and I praise you. Let him sing songs of praise. Except if you're someone like me who I've discovered apparently I sing in the key of H. And I've discovered it doesn't exist. So and my grandson, one grandson who's very musical, keeps annoying me saying, go on, Papa, sing us another song in the key of H. Is anyone sick? So James asks three things. Are you facing trouble? That word can convey the idea of any challenge in life, whether it's a physical, emotional, mental, relational challenge. 
Are you battling things? Are you in a good disposition? Are things going okay? You're in good spirits. Then praise God. Worship him. Use your mouth to pray and praise. Then he says, is anyone sick? That word sick he uses, while it is translated in some of the Gospels for physical sickness, its primary meaning has to do with exhaustion and weakness. In other words, to have faced trouble or sickness to the point where you have become so physically weak and fragile. Or life has simply beaten you down. It conveys the idea of a sickness of weakness. Fatigue would be another word that you could use for it. We all battle that. This year for Pip and I, as you know, and thank you again for your prayers for Pip, has been a challenging year where she threw us a curveball by having a heart attack in February. I had just come out of eight years finally feeling better from all the strokes I'd experienced. And then we thought we were getting well, and a few weeks ago, for the first time, we thought we were the last ones in our family, we got COVID. And then a week ago, I thought I'd treat myself to a piece of chocolate on the side, and it, I didn't realise that it's so expired, I got salmonella from it. <laughs> so the next morning, we're taking grandkids to the zoo, we're stopping off to get some sushi. I step out of the car and I'm thinking, I don't feel so good. And I had to sprint for the side garden by the main road. Uh, we will stop the story at that point. <laughs> I've gone off chocolate at the moment. Being a chocolate addict, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you can go from one thing to another to another and it just beats you down. You get fatigued. Mentally, physically, perhaps still, still battles fatigue as her heart's recovering. And this is what James is saying. Is anyone sick? You're weary, you're tired, you're fatigued. Call for the elders of the church to come and anoint with oil to pray over you, and the prayer of faith will raise you up. One of the first things I did as a pastor in the churches we led was to train the elders in healing ministry to know how to go in and pray for someone. I'd take them to the hospital visiting with me so that they knew how to be called upon to go and pray for people. And I believe it's a God-instituted role of elders to do that. And it was through that ministry we saw some of the most wonderful prayers answered as the elders learned to perform their role. We saw a baby still in utero that had a cyst and a tumour in the middle of its brain. The parents called us in, the elders anointed, we prayed. There's a process I always took them through to prepare for that. The family went on holiday, came back, went back, had a follow-up scan because they didn't know what to do. And the neurologist said, I don't know how to explain this, but it's gone. And we were able to show the congregation the before and after scans. That was a wonderful outcome. But we're all real and know that sometimes that's not the outcome, is it? 
We wrestle with the mystery of prayer and healing. Equally, I've prayed over a little boy, eight and nine, journeyed with him as he eventually died of leukemia. I got too close because I've got a father's heart. See, one funeral service I cried all the way through. Just couldn't pull myself together. The issue is, we will wrestle with the mysteries of all these things because we are a people that James reminds us of on a journey through life, waiting for the ultimate reality of heaven to be our reality. But in between all that, we must learn to pray. We must learn to praise and give thanks. We must learn to call upon people to come and anoint and pray. And anointing in those days was done with olive oil. So if you're looking for anything special, it's right there by your oven. And they would massage if the person had a physical ailment. Oil was also seen as a medicinal value, olive oil, as well as a sacramental value of anointing, representing the presence of the Holy Spirit to come upon a person and minister to them. The prayer of offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Understand this. That word if is important because not all sickness, affliction and troubles and trials are the result of our sin. They are the consequence of living in a sinful and broken world. And sometimes they are the consequence of our sin. And we don't like to be told that, do we? We don't like the fact that sometimes we can develop an habitual practice of certain sins that will have an effect emotionally, mentally, physically. One of the most powerful demonstrations of this we ever saw was when a young woman, um, her and her husband, came to see us, and uh, she had had, I, I don't know how many miscarriages and stillbirths, and three children that were born that never lived long. And I would not name them, but they've given me permission over the years to share their story. And as we assembled a team to pray for her, the Lord gave different ones of us an insight into the issue. And as I sat there with her, I said, this is really hard to say, but you've kept a secret that I believe the Lord has shown me that at the age of 16, you had an abortion. She broke and wept. Her husband had no idea. And I said, at that point, a certain spirit came into your womb. Someone else had seen that she'd been involved in something else. It was hard, it was painful to confront the reality of the consequences of an action. She lay on the floor and wept and was marvelously delivered and set free. Went on to have Three beautiful children who all went full term and are now functioning adults in their own way. That was one of the most stark realities to me of having to deal with the consequence of a choice. But the outcome again, as painful as the process was, there was the joy of seeing someone set free and healed. 
if there is sin involved, they will be forgiven. And as hard as that is, I've learnt over the years in ministry, sometimes when confronting these things, before we as elders would go in to pray, we would assemble and I would say, guys, anyone need to confess anything? Because we're going to be laying hands on people and praying for them. And we want to make sure what we pray for and impart is done with the best of the purity of heart that we know before God. And very often we'd ask the people we're praying for. And then sometimes we would take communion together and I saw even in the act of communion, people being made whole. Because confession had taken place. We struggle with that. But James doesn't skirt around it. He faces these issues head on. And says sometimes there are consequences. Sometimes it's not. Healing... Sickness is just organic. I'm finding the older I'm getting, there are just random bits that are just falling off. (laughs) Random parts that are just growing. Yeah, that's just part of being human. Then he says in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. He transitions from the elders to all of us. It is not the exclusive domain of pastoral leadership to carry out this kind of praying. Martin Luther, the reformer, challenged the Roman Catholic Church on this when they decided that this was, whoops, a sacrament that only priests could carry out. And Martin Luther said, well, the priests have got a funny name. Their confessors called one another. It's just dawning on some of you. He said, this is for all of us. And it is. And some of the most wonderful ministry takes place when the one another's take place in the body of Christ. And James is bringing this in because what he's saying, one of the things it says to me above and beyond the issue of healing and prayer is that facing the troubles and hardships of life and getting through them, I need one another. I can't get to the end, steadfast and true on my own. I need at times to confess my faults, my weaknesses, my sins to my brother, to my wife, and have people pray for me. You cannot navigate the trials and suffering of life on your own. The best thing is to put it on the table with trusted, mature brothers and sisters who can then turn and pray for you for your weakness, for your frailty, for your fatigue, just to get through. There's a powerful thing in prayer. Then he uses Elijah as an example. And he makes the point that Elijah was a righteous man who prayed effectively and saw powerful things happen. And he reminded them he's just like us. He's got a human nature the same as us. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I can read through the Bible, particularly in the book of Acts and some of the Old Testament stories, and you almost think these men and women were superheroes. They had some kind of superpower and super relationship with God. But James is saying, no, no, he's just like us. He had all the weaknesses of human nature. He had success. He had failure. He had the spiritual highs. He had the spiritual lows. Hiding in a cave saying, God, kill me. I'm the only one. 
I was talking to someone on the phone recently and said, don't get the Elijah syndrome. You aren't the only one. <laughs> so James makes that point to emphasise the fact that Elijah gives us an example to follow. And the idea of Elijah praying earnestly is simply this. We don't see it in our English words so much. It comes out in, in the Greek New Testament. In the, is that it's the idea that he prayed and prayed till he got an answer and a breakthrough. He never gave up. In Hebrew, they would write it as he prayed his prayer. He just never gave up. He cried out to God until he saw that answer. And sometimes, as one person said, sometimes we can just sort of give up or stop one prayer too short. We've just got to keep banging on the doors of heaven sometimes. And then James wraps it up as we come to a close in verse 19 and 20, which in some ways is the summary of the whole book of James's goal that he wanted to get across. He said, if anyone wanders from the faith, from the truth, if any one of you should wander from the truth, that word wander is used in the sense of you're going hiking in the mountains and you go off the right path and you get lost. Anyone done that? <laughs> you're going trekking, you're going hiking. When I was in South Korea a number of years ago uh, for a pastor's thing, I, I thought I'd take myself off for a run and an explore of soul. I got terribly lost. And I came across a guy in a car park booth and I was trying my best, he spoke no English, to try and convey where I was staying and how I get back there. And in the end, he thought I was asking for meat for a meal. He goes, ah, moo! <laughs> no! <laughs> Motel, not moo! <laughs> it took me a couple of hours to find where I was staying. I wandered, I got lost, I went astray, but I saw the back streets of Seoul, Korea that I probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. And I have a tendency to wander. I'm not allowed, if we have family events, to go and pick up the fish and chips on my own. <laughs> I'm serious, I was backing out of the drive, one of our daughters and one of our other daughters came screaming down the drive as I was pulling out, running, Dad! Jumped in the car, I said, what? you're not allowed to go on your own. Because you always come back late saying, you'll never know who I met. <laughs> Just love meeting people. Dad, the fish and chips are cold. <laughs> if anyone should wander from the truth. See, one of the challenges that James raises as we pull this together is that when people face hardship and suffering and pain, and flip towards wanting to blame God and make oaths and all the things we've mentioned, there's the risk, the danger, and you've seen it, I've seen it. I've seen a pastor friend get to a point where he said to me, because of your kindness to me, I'll keep the door open, but I'm now an agnostic. People can wander from the truth. With a definite article in front of truth, what James is saying is it's not subjective truth, it is truth that is objective and defines reality, it is the truth of who God is, the truth of God's word. 
And unless we are so grounded in our relationship with God and the truth and the reality of God's word and the picture that it paints that anchors our soul, then the risk of wandering is great. We know that as parents when we warn our children about wandering away, don't we? Stranger danger, don't wander, don't go there, that's dangerous. We don't want to see our children wander off the path of what is real and true. And so it is with God with us. Then James tells us, when we see someone in the community of faith do that, it is our responsibility to rescue them, to turn them back from the error of their way, to care enough to confront to care enough as James does to say, stop doing that, this is the right way. Jude talks about plucking them, as it were, out of the fire. This is another perspective thing of James where he's saying, ultimately we're all going to die. Ultimately we're all going to face accountability with God. Ultimately, there is a heaven and a hope to look for that we anchor our lives on. And when we see someone wander from that, we shouldn't sit back and say, oh gosh, that's sad. Well, they've been through such a tough time. We should go after them. I remember a friend and I, when we were in our late teens, camping up near Oriwa, by the bridge where we used to play games, jump off, see how far you could go underwater with the rip and pop up. And there was a young girl, she would have been about 10, who had obviously got caught in the rip and was probably about 50 metres out from shore going up and down. We didn't stand there and go, oh, how sad. We went as fast as we could and we got her before she got out further, spluttering water, etc. Because what, when you see someone drowning, what's your natural instinct? Rescue. James is saying, when you see someone drowning in error who's left the faith, the truth, go after them. Because one day they will have to too stand before God. And when you do that, you help them avoid spiritual death. I know that's a strong note to end on. But we are living in times where people's faith is being challenged. Where life is challenging. And we are our brother's keeper. We have a responsibility to pray for one another. To help keep each other on the right path so that we will all one day finish steadfast and true. Pip and I have a saying from a workshop we've used on stress and depression and burnout called See You at the Finish Line. And I say to you, I want to I cross the finish line with you. I want to see you at the finish line, faithful and true. Whatever life has dealt you, I want to see you at the finish line so we can all high-five one another spiritually and say, we've run the race, we've finished the course, we've kept the faith. Let's stand.